Hey, one more thing before you go. What do you do when you start researching a project about Barack Obama and Dr. Angela Merkel, their partnership and why it's so important to world leaders? Don't go away. We're going to answer that. I'm your host, Michael Hirsch, and this is That Thing About Writing My First Book. My guest today is Claudia Clark. She's an author, the National Get Out the Vote Coordinator for the Democrats Abroad in Germany, and the author of My Partner, My Friend, The Relationship Between U.S. President Barack Obama and German Chancellor Dr. Angela Merkel. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to hear more about your book, but before we get to that, let's learn a little bit more about you. All right. Well, like you mentioned, I am an expat. I live outside of Munich, Germany. I've lived here for approximately three years. I am a, I've been a political activist my entire life. I'm basically a fourth generation political activist. I work, I have a degree in public policy from Michigan State, a master's degree in labor relations from the University of Illinois, a master's degree in history with an emphasis on women's history from San Jose State, and an MSW from the University of Michigan with an emphasis in community organizing. And with that background, I have spent most of my life working on political progressive campaigns. I was a uh, campaign manager for a school bond measure in uh, South San Francisco School District. I have worked on women's reproductive rights campaigns in South Dakota. I have worked on various uh, Democratic candidates, um, local Democratic offices uh, throughout uh, California, Illinois, and uh, Michigan, where I'm originally so from. Are you you're from Michigan originally, or from yes. California? So you you um, you grew up in. Michigan. Yes, I was born and raised in Michigan. And then uh, my husband and I were married right after I graduated. We graduated from college. And so really the last thing I did in Michigan was my husband and I married. And then he had a job in California. So we headed off to um, Los Angeles. And then we spent a few years there and then moved to San Francisco until uh, we were there until um, we moved to Germany in 2017. When you grew up, what, obviously you've got a, a huge academic background. Um, what was your primary focus? What What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, um, when I was little, I wanted to be a, a veterinarian, but I quickly learned that I was afraid of, I didn't like blood. So I figured that was, <laughs> and then somebody pointed out to me the animal's blood too. So that kind of, um, but I, I grew up in a politically active family. My mom um, my mom worked in JFK's campaign before she was old enough to vote. My grandfather was a, a shop steward and um, my great-grandmother was on the streets marching for women's suffrage. So that kind of um, set the stage for me. I, I knew I wanted to do something. You know, I was young and I was naive and I wanted to get into politics because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to rid the world of racism and sexism and homophobia. I was, you know, young and naive. Yeah, but those, even being young and naive, those are very um, profound opportunities to kind of change the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember even in college when most of my friends were out Friday and Saturday night in Michigan State had a bit, has a big reputation of being a party school. Um, a, a group of my friends and I, you know, a small group, we would spend Friday and Saturday nights at the union, um, in the lobby of the union, just talking about how we were going to rid the world of social uh, social injustice. We just different ways. You know, and it's 
It is unfortunate that we are back into that same environment at the moment in today's political mm-hmm. arena, where it seems to be uh, backtracking, unfortunately. And, you know, obviously we're not going to go into a huge political um, platform in regard to this, but it's interesting that um, when you went to college and when you went to university and as you evolve through that in your background and your parents' background, um, it's something that kind of was forefront and they're, they're fighting for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we're still fighting for right. that. Right. Well, and, and I, so, when I was, the, I, I was getting, I had wanted to get a PhD in history, but I don't take standardized tests very well. So my GRE scores weren't particularly good, but um, it ends up that it was just as well. Cause I, I really am not an academic, but my, the, the, Part of history that I really liked was the activism, the women's movement, the the civil rights movement. Um, that was so. I, I learned that I can I can learn about that and I can I can practice that um, and read about it and write about it without actually having to teach it and, and doing it professionally. From that perspective, you were active in Amnesty International. What is that about? They are a international organization that worries about or protects the civil rights and the human rights of people across the world. So they're opposed to things like the death penalty. Um, if there are people in Africa that are, have, don't have access to to fresh water, we will fight. We'll, we would do a letter campaign to say, you know, this village needs water. If somebody had been arrested unjustly because they tried to register to vote or something in, in Central America, we would do a letter writing campaign to try and, and help this person. So from that perspective, that's that's admirable. Um I know you had also been involved with many pro-choice groups. How'd you get involved in those? Um basically my mother, from the time I was about 15, um, my mother was out protesting. And I, and I very clearly remember this. Uh, Michigan was about to, to ban tax-funded abortions, and there was a, a ballot initiative to do so. And my mom was going, and I asked her if I could go with her. And she thought about it for a second. And then she's, and it was because she wanted to make sure I wanted to go because it was something I wanted to do. And she didn't want it to look like she was exploiting me and bringing me to do something I didn't want to do. And so, um, so I started, you know, that was the first thing I did was I went I went to that protest and I've, I've been doing things ever since in one form or another. And it's my position is you know, I, I was just talking to somebody about this earlier today is I'm relatively conservative on, on the issue. There are some people on the on that debate that think that abortion is just a form of it's a medical procedure and they don't understand the controversy. I'm on I'm a little I'm a lot more conservative than that. I I understand the moral dilemma. I understand why people are opposed to it. But I don't think it's anyone else's business. I certainly don't think it's I don't think it's anyone it's certainly not the government's position. And as a social worker during the years I saw a lot of people that had children that should not have had children. They they were either in, impoverished or they were their their boyfriend or their spouse was abusing them, and they had the the baby and it just it was a bad situation for everyone because they couldn't survive on their own and now they had a baby that was being abused and so it's it's a difficult situation and I'm and I'm practical and I realize women are it's women are going to desperate women are going to have 
abortions, whether it's legal or not, and I would rather it be safe. And outlying it is just going to make it dangerous. And I would, you know, I'm much more, let's be proactive, Um, realistic um, sex education, more accessible contraception. That's my position. I I respect that. I respect that. So you, um, have you always wanted to be an author? Yes and no. When um, when I was younger, when I was little, I I was good at creative writing, and, and that was kind of what my mom pushed me toward. Uh, and then as I got older, uh, in middle school and high school and college, I started doing more academic writing, and I couldn't do a, a I couldn't write a creative story to save my life anymore. When my husband and I decided that we were going to move to Germany, um, I knew that I needed to do something that I could do something that would allow me to work around my 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 schedule because I don't even though we've been here a while, I still don't speak German fluently. So that needs to I knew that learning to speak German and taking German classes needed to be a priority. So I I wanted something I thought writing would be something I could do while I was in Germany, I could either do it in the United States or in Germany, but it would give me flex- the flexibility I needed to learn German and um, acclimate to a new city and culture. Yeah, I um, I can relate to you in that regard for a couple of different reasons. I grew up in a, my father was a journalist and I grew up in a newsroom. So literally spent time as a child growing up in the newsroom, learning every aspect of it. Then I went to work for the newspaper myself. But from the production side of it, with cut and pasting, and with the, the pulling the paper, the the sheets together, and and you know putting planting the stories and the the photographs and the headlines and blah 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 blah, and my parents wanted me to be a journalist, and my father wanted me to be a journalist, and I went to college to be a journalist, and then I realized I really would rather have been a cop, <laughs> so yeah. I kind of started diverging into criminal justice and then the journalism aspect and the writer aspect kind of uh, kind of stepped aside. But ironically enough, we won't say how many years later, but I have evolved back to now, um, I enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of got back into the same thing you did. I, I, when I went back to university, I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And in the process of that, I had to do a bunch of academic writing. Well, that academic writing allowed me to kind of re-explore um, writing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, maybe I do like, maybe something, maybe there is something to this. <laughs> uh, my father, unfortunately, passed away when I was like 17 years old. So he didn't get to see this evolution come back around. Yeah. You know, this, yeah. Uh, I, I hear you. You know, my, I lost my mom when I was 27. Um, so a few years ago, so she hasn't, you know, she, she saw me graduate from college and graduate school, but she didn't, she hasn't seen how I've evolved now. So, well, what what made you guys want to move to uh, like Bavaria? Um, this is a long story. Um, this is going to sound really trite and cliche, but when I was about five years old, I saw the the movie The Sound of Music, and I saw Julie Andrews wandering around the mountains of Salzburg, which is Austria. It's not Germany, but it, it's still considered Bavaria. And growing up in Michigan, it, Michigan isn't flat. I thought so at the time, but since at the time I really thought it was flat. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to live there someday. And then my my uncle was stationed in, in Germany. He was in the military. And we, when I was in high school, we came, we went to visit him. And we, we visited different parts of Europe. And I insisted that we go to Salzburg. 
And I did, I, I literally, I fell in love with it. And I just, I said, I'm going to stay true and I am going to move here someday. And that I never really forgotten about it, but you know, life kind of gets in the way. And then um, in 2015, uh, my husband and I came to Europe for our 20th wedding anniversary and we, we visited Salzburg and I, I reconnected with a cousin that I hadn't seen in 30 years because he was born in Germany and raised in Germany and a, a nasty divorce. And um, we, my husband and I had always said we we're going to live, you know, convince my husband to move here and it was going to be at someday. And then um, things just kind of happened. Um, my husband worked for a company that had um, a lot of German expats living, living in the United States. So they meet and we started taking German classes and his, his friend um, made a couple of phone calls. And the next thing you know, they offered us a job. They offered my husband a job in, in Bavaria. Um, it's not, people often ask why, not necessarily why Germany, but why Munich opposed to why Berlin. And my answer is always because of the mountains. Berlin is an, is an amazing city. I love Berlin, but it's too far from the mountains. And we're within driving distance of Salzburg. Ideally, I would like to be in Salzburg, but my husband is an engineer. And so the job market for him is better in, in Germany than it is in Austria. The question resolves then, did you get to go where Julie Andrews walked? Oh, many, many times. <laughs> many times. I, I've been on that mountain. And quite all, before the coronavirus, we, we would go. You know, if we just need something for the, for the weekend to do, we would we would go. So, and it is the, the, truthfully, the movie doesn't even do it justice. It is just so spectacular. My grandparents on my father's side are from Austria. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I've never been there myself, but um, I know that, you know, that's where they've, that's where they come from and they had loved it there, but they obviously opportunity America offered, they came here, Yeah, especially during the war and a whole bunch of political mm -hmm. issues and blah, 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 blah. So they chose to leave Austria and um, move to the United States, which is good because that's why I'm here. Yeah. So it, wor it worked out pretty well, I think. I know that you are the national get out the vote coordinator for the Democrats abroad in Germany. Now, earlier you had said something, you know, that you're an expat. So for some of our listeners, could you help us understand what an what that term means? What is an expat? Yes, an expat is someone of one nationality living in another country. So um, I, I'm a, I am still a U.S. citizen, but I am. My husband is a U.S. citizen, and we are living in Germany. Um, but we still have all the rights of U.S. citizens. Um, for example, we can we can still vote. We still have to file U.S. taxes. Um, and we, um, we are considered U.S. citizens. Um, and, uh, and my husband had some coworkers that were German citizens that were living in the United States and they were, they were considered, that's a German expat living in the United States. And again, it's the same kind of thing. They still have, it differs what rights you have differs based upon what country you're coming from. I know, for example, and under German law, you after you've been out of the country for 20 years, you can no longer vote in federal elections in Germany. But other than that, you, you're still considered a German citizen. You still have your German passport um, and you could come back to Germany without having to, to um, fill up paperwork. You could just come. 
<laughs> it's come back. Is it similar to like what what here is a resident alien, for example? Yeah, yeah. Something like that, similar to that. So you, talking about voting and that you can still vote, so you're the national get-out-the-vote coordinator for the Democrats there in Germany. Uh-huh. So well, what, tell me about that. There are approximately 25,000 U.S. citizens living in Germany, I think is the number. And we all, as U.S. citizens, we all have the right, and really, I argue, the obligation to vote. So we just, we we go out to make sure that a lot of people don't realize that they're, they're still eligible. And sometimes it's students that are over, are here for a study abroad program. Sometimes, like, for example, with my cousins, who even though they are U.S. citizens, they've spent their entire life here because their mother was German, but they're still U.S. citizens and they are eligible to vote. So, and then there are people that are here for uh, expats for their company is an international company and they've got businesses and offices. We have several friends that are in that situation where they come overseas for two or three years and then they go back to the United States. And so, whether it's any of those situations, you, as long as you are a U.S. citizen, you are eligible to vote It depends in federal elections and, and state elections. It depends upon what state you're in. And so what we do is just make sure that people are aware that they are eligible, make sure they're registered, and then ultimately make sure that they, they do vote. That's interesting. So let's talk about your book. Okay. The book is My Partner, My Friend, The Relationship Between U.S. President Barack Obama and German Chancellor Dr. Angela Merkel. If you want a one-stop shop of everything, one more thing before you go, visit BeforeYouGoPodcast.com where you can find each and every episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Links to your favorite listening platform, subscribe and review options, as well as access to expanded show notes and guest bios. And as a special bonus, by visiting BeforeYouGoPodcast.com, you can purchase any book from one of our shows It's a perfect resource for everything you need to listen, learn, and follow your favorite podcast. One more thing before you go on BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. You explore how the relationship between Barack Obama and Dr. Angela Merkel evolved. Can we talk about that? Um, From the beginning, um, President Obama and Chancellor Merkel did not start off on the best of circumstances. It started, there were a couple of things uh, that started. President Obama at the time, I should say candidate Obama, had wanted to come to Berlin to give a speech before Brandenburg Gate. And Merkel, this was in July of 2008. So he wasn't even the official candidate at the time for the Democratic Party. And Merkel did not want Brandenburg Gate to be used as a political ploy. So she said no. And that kind of irritated the Obama administration a little bit. And um, Merkel was very dubious of President Obama because she she thought he was a lot of talk and no action. So she was a, a little skeptical of him. And, I, you know, as much as I like President Obama, he, he was a little arrogant and he didn't like the fact that he was this up and coming rock star, so to speak. And everybody kind of catered to him, except Merkel didn't initially. And he didn't like that very much. So there was kind of a tension between the two of them from the beginning over that. And they also disagreed on on politics when they, in policies, when they, when Obama took office, it was at the heat of the height of the 
economic crisis. And Obama and um, English Prime Minister Cameron wanted to stimulate the economy by putting money into the economies, whereas France, President um, Sarkozy and Chancellor Merkel wanted regulations to ensure that circumstances didn't happen again. And so the two of them kind of butted heads on that for a while. And then through the course of their relationship, they 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 became very, very good friends. It was there's a turning point, which I don't want to I don't want to tell you what it is because I want you to read the book. But but what this book does is trace how we went from that period to the very, very end where um, the very, very last time Merkel saw Obama, uh, she cried. And then the very, very last person President Obama talked to the day before the inauguration of Trump the very last person um, President Obama called was Chancellor Merkel. And so the book covers the highs and lows of the relationship, beginning with the Brandenburg Gate episode to the final phone call that President Obama made to Chancellor Merkel. It's really interesting. Yes. It's your first book. And what was your motivation for um, which one to write it? A couple of reasons. I, I happened to... We were still living in the States at the time, and I happened to turn on the television uh, when President Obama and Chancellor Merkel had their final press conference, and that was in November 2016, and that was after we were in the period of transition. It was after the presidential election, but before uh, Trump's inauguration, and Obama was making his final European trip, and I just remember watching the press conference and seeing the interaction between the two of them, and I just remember turning to my husband and saying, oh, my, wow, Merkel looks like she's about to cry. And, you know, my husband looks up from his laptop and he just said, well, she's not the only one. And then I remember that there were books written about the relationship between former President FDR and uh British Prime Minister um, Churchill, that those two had had a good relationship and they had been very, very good friends. So I, so I started thinking, well, I wonder if there's something here. And then I remember I was watching the first press conference after Trump had been after Trump had been elected and Merkel was in Washington visiting him. This was in March of 2017. And I just saw the, the interaction between the two of them. Trump wouldn't shake Merkel's hand, and it was just very, very awkward. And then I remember reading some journals, some newspapers, and they were comparing pictures between Obama and Merkel and Merkel and Trump, and they were kind of joking and saying, wow, it looks like Merkel really misses President Obama. And when I saw these articles, I, I just was thinking, okay, there is something here. There is something that I that I'm not unique in my, my seeing this. And I think what, what the final straw was when I realized that um, the very, very first trip that President Obama made after he, he left office, his first overseas trip was back to Germany, back to Berlin, for it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the invitation for him to come speak came from the church. It didn't come from Merkel. But I just found it telling that the very first person he wanted to come and see after he left office was Chancellor Merkel. And so that's when I started, 
I didn't know at this point if there would be anything to it. I didn't know if I would be able to find enough information, but I said, okay, let me see. You know, I put my history skills, research skills to use and started researching. And the next thing I know, I have a 250 page manuscript. Wow. Did you have access to either one of those? No, not. And what I'm hoping is once I have a publisher, I can have more access to them than I might. I might at this point in time, because what right now my research is prime is all primary sources from newspaper articles, from White House archives, from uh, Bundestag archives, and and books primarily. I know that you um you said you go kind of go beyond the the professional bond between uh-huh. both of them. And obviously, when we've watched them on TV or when we've seen them in any uh, event that they were part of together, um, they had a very positive relationship, you know, uh, completely opposite from the uh-huh. current administration. And, and that's not a political it's, statement. It's, that's it's a fact. An yeah. And, and that's. And that's yeah. one of the things I do is I trace when I when I examine the relationship between Obama and Merkel, I looked at a couple of things. I one thing I looked at was how they reacted with one another. And for example, and it takes some time, but they they go from being very, very formal with one another when they're interacting, you know, they're always initially it's always President Obama when he when Merkel is addressing President Obama and Obama is very always it's always um, Chancellor Merkel, but as as the relationship progresses and, and I talk about this, it changes from that to Merkel begins to refer to President Obama is not just Barack but Lieber Barack, which in German means dear Barack, and she switches. If if you know anything about German culture, um, they have two forms when addressing someone. The the it's either do if you're form if you're informal with someone. So if you know someone and you're on first name basis, and then it's Z if it's uh, someone you're not on first name basis with, very very formal. And she switches and she begins referring to to Obama even publicly and using the do form, which in. I had several of my German friends looked at that and said, "This is significant. This is really really important." And so. I looked and and then, you know, and of course, Obama, again, he starts referring to Merkel as Angela, and he always refers to her as, as my friend, Angela. And so that's one of the one of the, the ways I looked at the relationship between the two of them. And then the other thing that I looked at, not just how they interact, but how they interacted with one another. For example, there was a there was a point in time when they were in um, Bavaria right before a, a G7 summit. And Obama, they were having lunch or breakfast, I should say, with some local um, people in a very small Bavarian town. And President Obama addresses the the audience and he's like, Gruß gut, everyone, which is not German, but it's actually Bavarian, a dialect of, of German. And it just means it means greeting from God, but it's it's a it's a greeting. And um when when President Obama did that, Chancellor Merkel was standing right next to him and she giggled and she clapped and she, I think the phrase I use in the book was she acted kind of like a lovesick teenager because she was so excited that he could speak not just German, but, but the local dialogue. And so I, so I looked at the relationship between the two of them and how they interacted with one another. And then the third thing I took into consideration when I looked at the relationship was what opportunities did they offer one another. For example, Merkel and Obama visited Buchenwald. It was a former concentration camp. And Obama, President Obama was the first 
U.S. president to actually visit that camp. He's not the first president, obviously, to have visited a, a concentration camp, but that one, and that one in particular, he wanted to visit because his great uncle had been part of the LA troops that had liberated that camp. So he had wanted to see it firsthand. Um, and then on the other side of the Atlantic, um, Merkel, President Obama awarded Chancellor Merkel with the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. And that is the highest honor. Well, it used to be the highest honor that a president could give a, a non or a civilian. And it was one that is very, very rarely given to a, a a non-U.S. citizen. So I, I look at those those kind of things between the two of them, and that the three, in how they interacted, how they referred to one another, and what they did with one another, and that was kind of the the basis of how I came to the conclusion about the strength of their relationship. Yeah, it's obviously it's going to be an enlightening piece, and it also I think it emphasizes the German-American uh-huh. relationship, right? Because I think some of that's deteriorated recently. Yeah. That's part of my reason for, for writing this book. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, the second part of the thesis was not just Merkel and Obama's relationship, but the relationship between the United States and other allied countries. And I believe in a globalized world that we live in with climate change, with terrorism, we really need now more than ever, we need to be able to rely on our allies. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that is deteriorating, not just in the United States. I think the United States is one country, but it's happening in Britain with what happened with Brexit. So I think we just have to be very, very careful. And I, and I argue this, that it is imperative. I don't necessarily think President Obama and Chancellor Merkel had a very unique friendship. There's no question about that. But I think we're in dangerous territory because now we're, we've gone to the other extreme. I, I, I read recently that Merkel was given a, an invitation to come to Washington earlier this summer. And she it was leaked later that she had told President Macron she refused to go because she didn't even want to be in the same room with Trump. I never expected Merkel and, and Trump to, to get along as well as President Obama and Merkel did. But I do think we're in a dangerous situation now. Somewhere down the line, we've lost the diplomacy <laughs> and respect. And the, the diplomacy, respect, and the the, um, the mutual respect between the countries, between the, the, the leaders of these countries. I think that egos have certain egos without going into in-depth, but Mm-hmm. It's a fact. Certain egos have played a part in destroying relationships that have been built with countries, you know, all, all over, not right. just Germany, but, uh, all, you know, yeah. several countries, numerous countries. Um, and it's very sad, very, very sad situation. I'm sure it's frustrating for expats in, you know, that are watching it from abroad because it's very difficult for um, activism from from this perspective, from uh, you know, coming back to the United States because it's difficult um, with the protesting and with the with everything that's going on. I'm sure that it's co- probably very frustrating that you can't um, get more. Uh, well, involved. and what's what's really hard, I think, for me as an expat is whether I like it or not. They are in Europe. They are obsessed with what goes on in the United States. I can't. In fact, I know more about what's going on in the United States than I know about what's going on in France or Italy or Spain, unless it's very, very, unless it's something very severe. But quite often I'll turn on the news and the first five, six, seven minutes of the news, the, you know, they were covering the, the vice presidential debate, which 
isn't necessarily, I'm, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but it's just, it's, it's frustrating when you see all the chaos and the discourse that's going on in the United States as an American over here, and there's not much you can do about it. There's more than what they're showing on television. And I know that, but the, the average person who lives on the street for me, who just sees this, doesn't understand that. And so this, all they're seeing is the, you know, the people, the riots in the streets because of the Black Lives Movement or there, or because Trump is not taking the coronavirus seriously. So that's what, so it, it paints a negative view of what's going on in the United States and it's not necessarily complete. And I, and I think right. as an expat, that is, I, I think what, what concerns me the most is, well, yes, I, I do think that that was one of my biggest complaints about living in the United States is we don't really care about what's, we don't focus what's going on in the rest of the world. So, so I do think it's important that the Europeans know what's going on in the United States. But at the same time, I do think that they focus way too much on what's going on going on unfortunately selective and there's too much false rhetoric going around all the way around so hopefully we can get back to something that is normal soon and that i think that uh, that would be a positive for not only the united states but positive for mm -hmm. europe as well in our relationship with right. people in europe so when you you go through part of, of angela Mer uh, merkel's politics, uh -huh. correct like She's the behind the iron curtain, so she's really yes. transformed. And yeah, and I, I don't, I dedicated one chapter to to uh, Merkel and Obama's how they uh, historical um, biographical information, how they both rose ro to fame or political power, I guess. And yes, uh, and that's one of the things I'm convinced that that why President Obama liked Merkel so much was because he had so much respect for her because she went how she managed to go from a you know a young girl she was six or seven i think when the berlin wall went up and how she went from living behind an iron curtain and she spent the early part of her career as a physicist and then when the wall came down she was able to um you know within months really become a somebody, you know, a cabinet member in a political party, and then later um, uh, the leader of a free and united Germany. And and President Obama time and time again would just say, you know, who would have thought that someone coming from her humble background would rise to become who she is? And it's unfair. I, th I think Obama kind of treated her as someone who kind of pulled herself up from her bootstraps, but that... It's not completely accurate because when we use that term, often people think of it as economics in an economic situation. She was very fortunate. Her father was a was a minister, a Lutheran minister, and her mother had been by trade a teacher, but she taught English and Latin. So she was forbidden from, by the communist government to actually work. But they, by all means, they had a Angela Merkel grew up in a very modest middle class family. But growing up under communism, she she talks about how her life was a little more challenging because she was the daughter of a minister. So they were, in addition to always having the government look, looking at you and seeing what you're doing, it was even worse for children of people of the church. She she opted to go through the normal confirmation process of the Lutheran church, when coming of age process. So she she had a lot more obstacles than than most people. and. I, 
I, I'm convinced that that is why President Obama admired her so much, because he's like, how did someone go from not being able to talk about politics or being arrested for it to being a, the leader of a free and united Germany? How do you become a chancellor? Um, it's an election process. They have a, um, a de they're a democratic um, government. Uh, what they do is they normally, unlike the United States, where we can vote for our our candidate, you vote for the party. So she, so you vote for um, the the party that you that you would like, and then that party that gets the majority then um, nominates their candidate. Now, is that something that happens uh, like every four years, like yeah. it does here? Or? And how long she's has she been, been chancellor since 2005? She's been the longest, oh. longest chancellor. And I, I'm convinced that um, she really didn't want to run again because she was up for, she was reelected in 2017. So a year after our election and a year or two years, I guess, after, after Brexit. And I'm, pretty convinced that she did not want to run again, but she felt with the election of Trump and with the Brexit that she, the Western world needed some level of stability and they felt that she would be the one to provide it. And there's some discussion. I, I've seen this in articles that when President Obama made his final trip to Berlin in 2016, in November 2016, that was his main goal was to convince her that she needed to run for re-election because she had been non-committal about doing it. So you also had dedicated a chapter in the book in regard to how Barack Obama rose to fame as well, correct? To his political It's the same, it's, uh, the same chapter. I, I put it into two parts. One part was Merkel and one part was Obama. Ah. And obviously they both, uh, they both are very distinguished individuals and have accomplished so much. It's interesting that, um, that Merkel went from being a physicist to, to her current position. Uh -huh. Well, and it, it's interesting because um, her father was, was a minister. And even though they weren't, they were forbidden from talking about politics, the, in the research I did at the time, they had heated political discussions at their house during dinner. And so it was discussed. And her, her younger brother was active in politics as well. And in one of the documents, one of the research documents documentaries I, I read about her, one of her former colleagues when she was a, a scientist said that it's not really, it does sound like it's a big leap to go from being a physicist to a chancellor, but it really wasn't. And the, the analogy he used was he said that Merkel wanted to use her power to change the world. And as a scientist, it was, she was going to use her power to make discoveries and, and power to analyze data and that kind of thing. And so, and as a chancellor, as a politician, she can use that power to influence policy, influence economies and that kind of thing. So it, it's two sides of the same coin is what he pretty much argued. That's interesting. Do you think the current administration has damaged what has been built up? Uh, in the United States? Between the United States oh, and Germany. Oh, most Germany. definitely. There are a lot of things that Trump has done to undermine what has happened, what took 75 years to accomplish. You know, he, he stated from the very beginning, one of the things he wanted to do was dissolve NATO. And in, in his defense, his, his gripe about NATO is to a certain extent valid because every country is, is supposed to spend or dedicate 2% of their gross domestic product into NATO 
for their defense. And most European countries, including Germany, have been reluctant to do so. And that was something that President Obama even was frustrated with. But the difference was Obama was diplomatic about it. And apparently Trump at one point gave Merkel a $2 billion bill and said, here, you need to pay this. This is your bill for NATO. So so there's that. There's discussion about frustration over that, him, uh, Trump wanting to dissolve NATO. Um, there's there's frustration on part of the, the Europeans over how he has handled Putin. Since day one, he has argued to reinstate, he wanted uh, Russia reinstated in the G7, which they were expelled because Putin had uh, unlawfully annexed yeah, Crimea. Crimea. So, so there was that, there's, so the, the rest of the European community was very upset with Putin for doing that. And they're the ones that threw him out. And so with, with Trump arguing that they needed to be pl- to be placed, allowed back in, caused some friction. Trump wanted to, you know, he, he pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, Paris Climate Accord. So there's, there's some discussion about that. He pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He, you know, a lot of things he did cause ramifications across the world. So I don't think, luckily, the, the relationship between the United States and Germany or the rest of the EU is a strong relationship. And I don't think it's, I don't think he's damaged it permanently, but it is going to take a long time to repair. And Merkel has stated on more than one occasion that the EU needs to learn, the EU slash Germany needs to learn to rely on each other and not so much the United States. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with Trump, but not solely because of Trump. And, and Trump is also threatening to withdraw many thousands of troops that are stationed in um, various parts of Germany. Um, and he did he did that, he made that announcement without talking with the Pentagon over it uh, and without talking to Germany about it. And I don't know enough to say whether that's a right decision or a wrong decision, but the fact that he did it so hastily caught a lot of people in high positions off guard. I agree with that. I mean, this that would take another week's worth of podcasting, actually, to kind yeah, of discuss and, and all of that. I only know the, the very basics, so I don't even want to say that whether, I don't know if it were a right or a wrong decision. I just know that it was done hastily. And, and that is what I think concerns most people, because I know a lot of Germans are, are fed up and don't want Americans here, and a lot of Americans don't want to be here anymore. But whether that's a wise decision is not for me yeah, unfortunately, um, the research that I've done, and I'm a well-educated individual, and I feel that with my education, it gives me the opportunity to research and uh, analyze and look at both sides of the coin, so to speak, and to kind of uh, balance what I'm reading and what I'm looking at and the information that I'm taking in and evaluate that as to whether or not it's uh-huh. factual or whether or not the decisions made were based upon ego or false rhetoric, or whether or not they were based on legitimate opportunity to rebuild or create something that would be more beneficial. And in all of those cases, I have found none of that to be very yeah. positive. So, it wouldn't surprise me. But this is about... I said it wouldn't I'm surprise sorry. me. Yeah, it's it's just not very good at all. I just don't like it. You had said that you're looking for a publisher mm-hmm. now for the book. I have one publisher in the United States that's reviewing the manuscript now, and then if they de- if they decide not to go with it, I have another one that 
I am going to, it's, it's a board, it's kind of in between the traditional publisher publishing house and a self-publishing group. So I will, one way or the other, I will have the book published. Obviously, I think that it's a very opportunity to kind of understand a very distinct relationship between those two. Both of those individuals are are well-respected within the world. And I think that the stuff that I have read that of your excerpts that I've been able to read and our discussion, I think that it's a book that uh, people should look forward to reading once it comes out. Thank you so much. I I am hoping, I was hoping for uh, this by, before the election this year, but coronavirus has kind of put everybody on hold. So stay. Well, this podcast is, of course, named One More Thing Before You Go. So before you go, do you have any words of wisdom um, you want to share? I, yes, I would argue that the takeaway um, but with my book and the relationship between Barack Obama and, and Angela Merkel is the two came from very polit- uh, two different political parties. Um, she's center right and President Obama is, is center left. And while the political parties are not not identical to, between the United States and Europe, they're they're very similar. And President Obama and Chancellor Merkel, they came from different political parties. They had huge differences of opinions on many things, but they still managed to work together for the, the welfare of their own countries. They put their differences aside. And I I think people, what scares me more is about what's going on in today's tribalized world is that people are so divided that they're they're not willing to work with the other side. And that's dangerous. And so I I urge people to look at people you, you don't like somebody you don't have to you don't have to agree with them on absolutely everything but that doesn't mean you have to block them because you don't agree with them on everything and look at the relationship between those two and just say how they're from different backgrounds political ideology and they work together how can we get back to there and i think that's what we need to focus on excellent words of wisdom actually well, thank you very much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I uh, respect your journey to getting to where you're at. Congratulations on getting your book finished. As soon as it goes, uh, gets published, please let me know, and I'll make sure that my listeners get an update on that and then uh, you know help you get it promoted because I think it's going to be an outstanding opportunity for people to learn what civility is and what respect is and this journey of these two incredible individuals. Thank you. I will be glad to do that for you. And thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.